Well, last week we looked at Ephesians 4, verse 14, and I gave a brief overview of the first three chapters of Ephesians because we haven't been there since the spring. And then we saw Paul warn us against these winds of doctrine, these things that blow up kind of like a storm does out of nowhere, and they look really good at first, and when they're investigated, sometimes we see that they're not true, in fact, it is false. And we gave some examples of what false teaching can look like. And this wasn't meant to be an exhaustive list, but we said false teaching is anything that removes God from the center and elevates man to a position we were not meant to be in. False teaching is something that emphasizes one area of faith or of God's attributes or character to the neglect of everything else. And we gave some examples of what that looks like. And now, after warning us of what is false, what to watch out for, Paul goes on to tell us what we ought to do. He gives us the positive side of things. And I'm so thankful that the scripture doesn't only tell us what is wrong, what is false, but it tells us what is true, what we are to pursue. Can you imagine if your life was only marked by trying to sniff out what was wrong? If your life was dedicated only to finding out what is false, how bitter and and angry we can get. Even, Even if that isn't your life goal, you know that when we start investigating things and things are wrong and you get kind of boiled about it, can you imagine that being all that we had? But praise God it's not. Praise God that his word not only tells us and instructs us, this is what we need to stay away from, but it also tells us, here's what to fill your mind with. Here's what to pursue as Christians. We not only need to know what we are against, we need to know what we're for as Christians. This is really important. It's sometimes appropriate to call out sin, to point out teaching or beliefs that are dangerous and destructive. We ought to do that. But that not ought to be the only thing that people see in us. They need to see, as Paul is going to explain today, what we are to do, what we are for as Christians. This is a really important balance. And the reason that I think it's important is because you know, as well as I do, that we are bent towards pendulum swings. We want to go all the way over here and just blah, 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 and get after it. Or we want to go all the way over here. When in reality, the Christian life is not a life of compromise, but it is a life of holding things in tension. And that's what I think Paul is doing. When we put 14 together from last week, as well as 15 and 16 this week, we are going to see how we as Christians ought to conduct ourselves, specifically in the church. So that's the plan for today. We're going to look at Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16. So if you haven't done so, I'd invite you to open your Bible. Ephesians chapter 4, and follow along. I'm going to start in verse 11, so we get the whole thought chunk from Paul here. So follow along, Ephesians 4, starting in verse 11. Paul says, And he gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by 
craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, being joined and held together with every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning and we ask for your help once again. I know from my own heart that I am bent towards seeing things in polar opposites, very extremes at times. And I pray for your help now to see that, Lord, it's not that we don't say what is true, but that if we want the body, if we want the church to grow into maturity, which is your design for the church, that we ought to deal in a certain way with one another. So impress this upon my own heart and upon the hearts of those in the hearing of your word this morning. Lord, would you be pleased with our worship? Would you be pleased with the handling of your word? I feel my own inadequacy and I pray for help. So give help in the preaching, give help in the listening. And as we look to your perfect, infallible word this morning, Lord, would you change our hearts through the power of your spirit. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, your son, that I pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to see in these two verses two different instructions for us. We're going to see instruction for personal growth, and we're going to see instruction for corporate growth. So let's look first at number one, instruction for personal growth. In contrast to the childlike immaturity that we saw last week in verse 14, which is a result of this false teaching that Paul warned against, Paul's desire now is that in the positive sense we would see what the church is to do, how we are to grow or move past that childishness into maturity and a full understanding of Jesus Christ. So what we're going to do is look at these verses pretty closely because there's certain phrases and even certain words that are so important to us that we need to understand what's going on. So look at the beginning of verse 15. Paul states that rather than being led astray by what is popular or what is blowing around in the culture, whatever sounds good, we are to speak the truth in love. So we should see this truth as the contrast to what we saw in verse 14. Winds of doctrine, waves blowing around. Now we're going into the opposite of that, which is the truth. Now, of course, we would agree with the rest of Scripture that we are not only to speak what is true, but that the conduct of our lives ought to match up with our confession. That what we are saying, what we are speaking, has to match the way that we actually live out our lives. But Paul here, in the word that he uses, translated speaking, clearly refers to our confession. It is the things that we affirm, the things that we say, it's what we hold dear When we speak of spiritual things, when we encourage one another, when we're discipling one another, what are we saying? We are to speak the truth. And aren't you glad also this morning that we do not have to manufacture truth? It is not up to us to decide. Paul didn't write to this church and say, why don't you guys get together and decide whatever you think is true. And if you can come to a consensus, go with that. That's not what he says. There is an objective truth that we are supposed to speak. So what is that truth? Like I said, we don't have to make it up. Paul gives it to us earlier in Ephesians chapter 1. He said this, 
this is verse 13 of chapter 1. In Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, then he tells us what it is, the gospel of your salvation, and believed on him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The truth that we are to speak, in contrast to these winds and these waves that are blowing around, is what Paul calls the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation. You and I don't need to wear ourselves out trying to come up with some clever way to articulate things, trying to find just the right words to convince people. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that we are to speak, that we are to confess. I don't make it up. You don't make it up. It comes from the word of God, which is our standard and our authority. The word we speak should be the word of truth. Peter made an unbelievable statement in John chapter 6. Jesus had just given this discourse about eating his body and drinking his blood and really hard things to understand, and the people didn't get it, just like we wouldn't have gotten it apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is what happens. This is verse 66 of John 6. After this, many disciples turned back and no longer walked with Jesus. So Jesus turns to the 12 and he says, do you want to go away as well? Peter answered him and said, this is verse 68, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. That is the truth that we are supposed to speak. This is what Paul is driving at. This is the reality that will transform all other so-called realities. That Jesus Christ came in the world to offer himself through his sacrifice of his own body to reconcile people who were separated from God, which is all of us, back into a relationship with God. This is the word of truth He has come and Christ has words of eternal life. So why would we look anywhere else to find out what is true? But Paul says, speak this. Speak this truth. But as you probably know, just like I do, there is a right way to speak truth and there is a, I'm going to call it a less right way (laughs) to speak the truth. This is why Paul follows up by saying, speak the truth in love. The truth of the gospel needs to be proclaimed. It needs to be upheld. It needs to be defended in the church and outside of the church. But there is a way to do that. We must not read this admonition, this instruction to speak the truth and forget what Paul just said a few verses earlier at the beginning of chapter 4. I have been coming back to this so often in the last month because I have found it to be so relevant for the various conversations that I am in. Look at the top of chapter 4. Look in your Bibles, right up at the top. Verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Is that the way that you defend the gospel? If I were to go on your Facebook account, would I see humility, gentleness, patience? 
When you talk to people who disagree with you, people who have different perspective, are you, are you patient with them? Do they smell this on you? They smell it on me? When, when I am convinced of the truth, when I know what is true, I can be way more bold than I probably ought to be sometimes. And this text has convicted me over and over again in the last couple months. Even though I know I am right, am I walking in a manner worthy of my calling? Am I speaking the truth in love? I can't tell you how many times I have heard of people getting so hurt by someone speaking the truth to them. This is not to say we don't say what is true. This is in no way a cop-out for us to say, well, I know it's true, but I'm, I'm just not going to say it. No, it's Paul is saying there is a way to communicate rightly. And it should line up with the confession that we have as Christians. Are we upholding the testimony of Christ, who did not hold on to what he rightfully could have, but humbled himself? Is that our posture? I want to be known as a church who is not afraid to speak the truth of the gospel, but who does it in a way that upholds the word of God and honors the people of God. So what happens when we do this? If we speak the truth in love, if we reject what is false, speak what is true, what happens? We grow up. We grow up, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And I'm so glad Paul included those two things at the end, that we grow up in every way and that we grow up into Christ. When he says that we are to grow in every way, you and I are left without excuse here. There is no secret area of our life that we can leave alone and say, you know what, I really don't need to mess with that right now. I'm just going gonna, gonna to set that aside. I don't need to grow there. No, we are to grow in every way into him who is the head. This is a call for all-encompassing growth. We tend to plateau in certain areas and you, you reach a point. Maybe you're even working towards a specific goal in your own Christian life. And you get there and we kind of say, okay, good, I'm there. <laughs> the, the, the reason Paul gives us so much instruction on growth is because it never ends. It just never ends. <laughs> Some of the smartest, wisest people I have ever spent time with are the people who are continually growing, who are continually searching for truth and more understanding of God and his word. Growth is continual. And I, I call this to attention because I have the tendency personally to Focus on the obvious things. Well, yeah, of course I need to work on this. Everybody knows that. It's obvious. But what about the secret, Jacob? What about the parts of me that you don't see? Am I growing in those areas? Am I pursuing development and maturity? Am I leaving behind childish things? We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ this is a lifelong process, brothers and sisters. You are not going to make it until God calls you home. And until then, pursue the growth 
pursue the development, pursue maturity, not so you can stock your head and have all the right answers, but so you know Jesus and you know how to respond when the situations of your life are really, really difficult. I just want to encourage you to examine your life. See if there's those secret areas, those less obvious areas that still need development, that still need growth. This is the call that we are receiving. But Paul says not only are we to grow in every way, what does he say? We are to grow in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Christ-likeness is the goal, it is the end of our sanctification. This is the reason that God chose us. Do you realize that? You ever wonder why? There's a multitude of reasons, but there is one overarching reason. This is Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son, so that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. God loves his Son so much That he redeems a people for himself so that all of the brothers and sisters in the family can look like their older brother, Jesus. God chose you, if you are in Christ, to look like Jesus. This should be the emphasis in our discipleship. As you meet with people, as you talk with people, as we mentor one another, it is not our goal to make someone like you. It is not our goal to make someone think like you and understand like you and respond like you. We are to get one another to think and act and respond like Jesus did. Grow up into every way into him who is the head into Christ. We are all really insignificant. Why would we strive to make someone like us? Ugh. Our job in discipleship is to lead people to the well. Show them how to let their bucket down into this and draw up living water so that we grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. That's the first call. It's a call to personal and individual growth. But Paul also gives us Corporate growth, this is point number two, instruction for corporate growth. Just as Paul has called us in verses 14 and 15 to grow, to mature, he also gives this call to the church. Look at verse 16 with me. From whom the whole body, that's Paul's language for church, being joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, Christ makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This verse can be somewhat awkward to read on its own because Paul does what Paul does. He starts a thought, he puts a parenthesis in and says something else, and then he finishes the thought. Normally he does this in a whole section, but here we have the privilege of having it all in one verse. But look in your Bible at the end of verse 15. This, this might help. The end of verse 15, the last verse, the last word is Christ, right? Look, look with me. And then the end of verse 16 makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's what we should see. Christ makes the body grow. And everything in between there is explaining how this happens. So even though there is growth, there are things that we do, Jesus Christ is the one who makes the body grow. So when you put that together, it helps a little bit to understand what Paul is saying. 
Now, the words that Paul uses, joined and held together, are really significant. And I don't often say, well, this is what the Greek says and whatever, but it is really helpful here, so I'm going to tell you what it is. The word joined was used in the philosophical area of the Greeks to make them understand how different arguments come together. Differing thought comes together to serve the purpose. There are different parts, different views. The word joined is how all of those differences come together. The word for held together is a construction term used by stonemasons. And what they would do is they would take a round stone and they would cut the edges off so that it could fit together. If you had a bunch of round stones laying around, there's not much stability in that, is there? But if they're hewn, if they're squared up and put together, it can be a much more solid foundation. That's the word held together. Can you see any application for the church here? No? Okay, let's pray. We'll end. Are you kidding me? Can you see this? That the church is to be joined and held together. It is a gathering of believers. Different views, different opinions, different ways of processing things. And we are held together. We have the edges shaved off so that we come together to form the body of Christ with all of its uniqueness and all of its difference. And yet the common goal is Christ. And we come together for this person. That is the beauty of the local church. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, unity in diversity. What that means is that we are all stones, different sizes, different shapes, and yet the gospel squares us up, puts us together so that we work not on our own, but together. One of the hard parts is that Paul mixes metaphors. (laughs) He uses like body and physiological language, and then there's construction language. We have to put all of this together and, and figure out what he's saying. Stones need to be cut. They need to be trimmed. They need to be held together. This is the design of the body. Therefore, Paul says that the body is made up of many different people who are committed to Jesus Christ And so committed are these people that they lay aside their own preferences. They lay aside some of their own desires. They subject themselves willingly to correction, instruction, encouragement, and growth. And we call this coming together, the gathering of the local church. This is the body of Christ. And it is exciting to me when I meet new people. Because I know that God has uniquely gifted every one of you. Remember Ephesians 2.10? We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Everyone in in the family of God has a unique gift. Everyone has a way to be used by God for the good of the church and for the building up of the body of Christ. So even though Christ is the one who makes the body grow, there is, what I see here, an interdependence. A depending upon one another to encourage one another and to grow. Verse 16, the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. This is talking about the way we grow together. The body is held together by individual parts. And when everything comes together, 
when it works the way it was designed to work, the outcome is growth. When Paul says each part working properly, I think that means that there is a way in which we can improperly work. We can work out of selfish motives. We can work for our own gain. We can work to draw attention to ourselves. Or we can work properly. And I think the working properly is when we come to the understanding that it is ultimately Jesus Christ who is the head of the church, who gives instructions to his church. And when we follow his plan, when we understand our role compared to his, it is proper working so that the body is built up, so that it's stronger because every piece is doing what it is designed to do. Paul uses this body imagery language in 1 Corinthians 12 when he's talking about the fact that one part of the body can't look at other parts and say, I'm more significant than you. There is none of that in the church. This is what Paul says. This is 1 Corinthians 12, verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, well, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But... As it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, verse 20, there are many parts and yet one body. Each part of the body, you, have been designed by God for a specific purpose. Now, you might bounce around a little bit as you're discovering what that purpose is. You might try different areas of ministry, and, ah, that just doesn't fit. That's okay. That doesn't mean God failed or that he equipped you wrong. But God designed each of us uniquely with different gifts, different abilities. And those gifts and abilities are not just so that you can live a better life, so that you can understand to a greater degree God gifted you so that you can employ those gifts for the good of his body, the church. God cares so much about the church. So much that he sent Christ to purchase the church. To redeem the church. And when it works properly, everyone recognizes what their responsibility is and works together. In the body of Christ. Verse 16. Christ makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the call to corporate growth. You see, there is a way that we grow on our own. Right? It's a really important part of our faith. And I hope that you are daily studying the word of God. Interacting with the word. And spending time in prayer and interceding for the people in your life who don't know Jesus yet. There are individual aspects of our walk with Christ. This is what we saw earlier in Ephesians, and we're going to see again. But there is another equally important part of our growth 
in the Christian life, and that is growth together. Do you realize that every one of the letters written to us in the New Testament is written to churches, not just to individuals? Even the apocalyptic book of Revelation addresses the churches. The New Testament does not know of a Christianity that is removed from the local church. The instruction to work together, to grow together, to bear one another's burdens, to all of this stuff is meant to happen in the context of a local church. Now obviously I pastor a church. This probably sounds really self-serving. But it's not. This is what the Bible instructs us to do. So I want to close by giving us two reasons why I believe we should all pursue involvement in the local church. And by the way, I don't necessarily care if that's here at Grace. I'd love for you to be here, get involved, to be fed. But if there is another place where you can better use your giftings, where you can receive the preaching of the word, where the gospel is clear, then go there, plug in there, serve the community there. But non-engagement is not an option for the Christian. So I want to give you two things. First, pursuing a local church is for your own good. It is for your own good. What do you do when you are pressed? <clears throat> what do you do when you need help? Are there, are there people in your life, are you putting yourself in the way of the means of grace that God has provided so that somebody can come and, and look at you and say, mm, boy, I don't think things are, are you guys doing okay? Are you putting yourself in those things? The local church is for you. God didn't save you so that you'd sit alone in your room and struggle and wrestle with the things that are weighing on you without anybody to help. God saved you. The reason the Bible uses adoption language is because God didn't just save you alone. He saved you, brought you into a family so that you have spiritual brothers and sisters who can help Galatians 6 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And no church does this perfectly, I know that. But belonging to a church, being involved, exposing yourself to the means of grace that God has provided is for your good as a Christian. Secondly, belonging to a local body is for the good of others for the good of others. 1 Peter 4. Peter says this. This lines up so well, I think, with what we're talking about today. As each has received a gift, this is 1 Peter 4.10, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Your giftings, your abilities, the unique way in which God made you he did not only do so that you can receive satisfaction. God gifted you so that you can use those giftings in the context of his body, the church, so that every part, when it is joined and held together with every joint with which it is equipped, makes the body grow. Do you see this connection to what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 4? 
The world is going to tell you to leverage everything you have for your own good. Right? Do whatever you have to do to make sure you are taken care of. When the Bible comes and says, do whatever you have to do to make sure everyone else is taken care of. And in the process, God will meet your needs. Belonging to a local body is for your good and it is for the good of others. When the body is working properly, when each part is functioning as it should, we will grow both personally and corporately. And that growth, in that growth, we recognize that Christ Jesus is the one who makes us grow. And then the body is built up together in love. Let's pray together as we come to the table. Father, thank you for the instruction of your word. Thank you that you did not leave us to ourselves, but you have given us instructions and encouragement and exhortations. I pray that each one now in the hearing of my voice would recognize the unique way in which you have made them, the unique giftings that you have given to all of your children. And Lord, would we recognize those and come to a place where we can use them to glorify you Don't ever let us take our giftings and twist them around so that we are the ones who receive credit. But Lord, help us to use the gifts you have given us for the good of those around us, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith. Come and make this a reality at our church, Father. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.